Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and I'm joining you for a special podcast live from Munich where the world is gathering to talk about global security and a new word that has never been heard before outside of this town, (laughs) Westlessness. To help us make sense of what's going on here, what is being talked about amongst the world leaders in this Bavarian town. I have an all-star cast from right across ECFR, starting with Ellie Garenmeyer, who is the Deputy Director of our Middle East and North Africa program, Ulrike Franke, who is a Policy Fellow at ECFR, Janka Ertl, who is the Director of our Asia program, and back to the podcast is Jeremy Shapiro, Research Director at ECFR. So, Rika, you got here bright and early. You've, I think, been absorbing the, uh, the mood here in Munich more than anyone else. Tell us a bit about what's going on. What is Westlessness? <laughs> That's a very good question. I, the other day I was giving an interview in German and had to translate it and that didn't turn out well. So I find this rather difficult. To be honest, a lot of things are going on. I mean, there are always side events in Munich. So you have the kind of big stage events happening in the big room, um, but then you also have side events. And this year's side events, there are so many of them that the booklet is, is almost like a thick, like a novel. It's, it's absurd. So there are many things happening. Very many high-level politicians are here. Yesterday, the conference was opened by German President Steinmeier, who gave a speech that I thought was really, really good. After that, there was a panel with uh, Nancy Pelosi and Wolfgang Schäuble. Uh, today, we're going to see uh, Macron. Right now, while we're recording, Pompeo and Espen are speaking. So, you know, you have a lot of people from all over Europe, all over the world, really, that are, that are meeting, that are talking and hopefully saying lots of interesting things. But honestly, at this point, I wouldn't really be able to identify the the mood yet. So, Janka, you were there in the room when President Steinmeier was speaking. Often German presidents come here to lecture their compatriots about uh, taking responsibility in the world. In 2014, there was a famous one where you had a series of speeches led by President Gauck, but in fact, Steinmeier gave one of those important speeches as foreign minister. Was this another of those moments where Germans are told to to stand up and look beyond their myopic internal politics and take responsibility for the world? I think Steinmeier's speech was all about Europe and Europe having to be strong in a world where otherwise it doesn't stand a chance and I think it kind of resonates with the Westlessness concept that if you know if we are not sure about what we are ourselves then we cannot portray anything we cannot assert any power in the world I think Steinmeier's speech was in that regard very helpful but I think what was more interesting to me is to see like the reaction in the room you had a delegation of 43 members of Congress in the room you have the US foreign minister the US defense minister the US came here with the strongest delegation that I've seen in a long time bipartisan they came here with a message and the message was we kind of have to stand together and China is the counterpart. And that was quite striking to me that there was such a unified message from starting panel one. 5G was all over the place. China was all over the place, all over the conversations. Quite stunning to me to see that. This American delegation, one of the most high profile people there was Nancy Pelosi. She was speaking at the women's breakfast this morning. Unfortunately, I had some certain problems getting into that because <laughs> <laughs> didn't invite me. But I don't know, Ellie, do you want to tell us what happened there? Yeah, sure. She gave a um, speech and took some questions from, from the audience, I think one of the you know interesting parts about it 
as, as someone who's looking into the Middle East region and, and wider, is she really focused in on the role of women in peace building, particularly in post-conflict areas. And um, she highlighted the case of Afghanistan, where there is now, you know, movement uh, between the US and the Taliban, at least for a temporary de-escalation of violence. And she emphasized that given there has been progress in the role of women in Afghanistan, we in the West need to be pressuring governments to make sure that that space for women in, in politics and society in Afghanistan is maintained, particularly because, you know, my impressions are at least that this is not a priority for the US government. And whether this is an area where European governments who are much more engaged with peace building and the role of women in that can, can make sure that this is an issue that's highlighted. Jeremy, we had a dinner last night on transatlantic relations. We can't mention all the prime ministers and Congress people and senators who were there last night. But they were incredible ones. <laughs> So starstruck, yeah. Boy, if you guys could only know who was there. (laughs) But we can talk about what they said. And I think one of the interesting things was how it relates to this topic of Westlessness, because one of the American speakers there um, said this thing, which I thought was very striking, when she said that, you know, lots of Europeans are hoping that we're just going to snap back to to what it was like beforehand if uh, Trump is not re-elected. And she said uh, several times for emphasis, it's over. (laughs) What, what do you think she was getting at? I think that she meant that it was over. But, um, you know, I mean, there's a sort of weird quality to this sort of mantra, which Europeans have started to sing, which is that we understand, I've heard it about a dozen times uh, at this conference, we understand that even if there is a democratic administration, it won't be a return to normal. It won't be a return to 2016. And I, I understand that they mean this, and I think they've been hearing it from Americans for a long time, so they're trying to internalize. It's become one of those sort of call and repeat things that people say, but they don't actually mean it. And it's quite intriguing. If you listen to then what they say right after they say that sentence, they are actually calling for a return to 2016. Because what they want, came out very much at the dinner, was they want a United States that is involved in European security, that privileges European security as an interest, and that uh, reduces the security dilemmas for European states, reduces their need to agree with each other, and reduces their need to provide for external security. And that's, you know, that is what we were talking about for 2016. And so I think that there is a problem here that even though people are understanding that, say that they understand, they actually don't know what changed. They actually haven't figured out what the difference between 2016 and now is. And maybe that's what Westlessness is is about. I'm a little bit confused like everybody else. It sounds like sort of making fun of people with speech impediments to me. I think Um, it's more about cluelessness. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, it sounds, for an American, it sort of resonates with Elmer Fudd, who is the Bugs Bunny character who had this particular speech impediment. And so his idea, his sort of driving force with his speech impediment was to kill the wabbit. And it does seem to me very often that this conference is about sort of killing the wabbit, making sure <laughs> that we, we hunt down that transatlantic alliance and that it can be what it was mm. in 20, in 2016 and even before. So I don't know. I mean, uh, the, the problem that this conference has to me is that because it is so deeply invested in the transatlantic alliance, it has become an end in itself. If I may, I have a slightly different take. I mean, I do agree that... So one that's not right is what you're 
I do agree that people haven't really figured out what to do about this Westlessness or about the kind of increasingly problematic transatlantic relation. I do believe that more and more people, both in Europe and the US, are kind of understanding that something is happening and that we need to deal with it. And so I was at a transatlantic lunch actually yesterday. And what was great um, was that there were two Republican members of Congress and they weren't quite Trumpian in, in the way that they spoke, but they said similar things about, you know, Europe having to step up, et cetera, et cetera. It was almost slightly confrontational between the US um, representatives and the Europeans because the Europeans at the table then spoke about European sovereignty and all of that. And so I think we're very slowly moving beyond the just absolute confusion and yeah, cluelessness about, oh my God, what's going on? We're going one step further at least. Um, unfortunately, this step further means the discussion, the conversations are becoming more controversial and now it's European sovereignty versus America first. I mean, that's that's not great, yeah. but something is happening there. That's one of the other things so that we've people talk a little bit. <laughs> I thought that it was, uh, people talk a lot, one of our dinners, a lot of the German speakers were talking about European values, so I thought that that was uh, <laughs> in line with Westlessness. But in a way, Janka, one of the ways of killing the wabbit is to obviously talk a lot about China and 5G because obviously the transatlantic relationship, the West in its glorious times was a product of the Cold War. We had a common enemy. It was evil and it was not free. It was an authoritarian empire. And lots of people seem to think that Cold War 2.0 can be a route back towards the glory days of the West, an end of Westlessness. And it's it's interesting, on the one hand, lots of people are talking about European sovereignty, but at the same time, many people are equally focused on making sure that Huawei gets banned from networks. That's obviously your topic. We just recorded the podcast on it very recently. But how do you think it's playing when Nancy Pelosi comes along and tells people about the dangers of, of Huawei, when other Americans come along and reinforce the Trumpian messages from across the aisle? Does that make Europeans feel that we're going back to the West? West, or does it make them think that they're now being bossed around by the Americans as well as the Chinese and it's time to strike out and develop this sovereignty that we've been talking about for so long? I think the crowd that you find here in Munich is obviously not super representative in terms of anti-Americanism and transatlanticism in, in the ratio that you find it in Europe normally. <laughs> so I guess with this crowd, it, it actually resonates quite well. And it is striking that you have a single message kind of being driven from a US delegation that would otherwise fight about every other single issue. But I think that the whole idea of this kind of messaging campaign that comes from the US at the moment, that this ha would have to catch on with allies immediately, that really doesn't cut it anymore at the moment. Um, the West doesn't exist in that form anymore, that the US kind of gives the marching orders and the Europeans will follow along. The Europeans have their own mind about this and have their own constraints, economic, political. And so um, I think that that message is being heard. Whether it really catches on in the end, I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm rather concerned that it would drive, it has a potential of driving us further apart because it is being seen as, what was one saying, pedagogy, like it was seen as being talked to as the, the children that don't get it. On the other hand, I think Europeans have to be very, very careful about in their, in their anger about the state of the transatlantic relationship, not to make stupid decisions that would have like repercussions for the next 30 years for the future of their infrastructure. So there's a balance to strike. I may just come in on that point, which is 
the, the issue of Iran has obviously also been another point where previous delegations who've come here have been kind of wagging the finger and basically been telling Europeans, you know, withdraw from the deal and sure, you know, Mike Pompeo saying something just doing that around now. Yes, um, <laughs> you know, help us confront Iran. And actually, I think they would find a much more receptive audience, particularly if it's the chief U.S. diplomat, to actually think about how Europe and the U.S. can work together on a political solution to a lot of these problems instead of a confrontation policy. And I think this is what's really creating, I think, some divisions in how the, the security policy community in Europe is reacting, which is this kind of bossy, billowing, billowing confrontational approach, which is actually, if you look at the Iran uh, file, is working because of the power of the US dollar and US economic weight in, in Europe. And, you know, it'd be interesting to see how far it works with, with China. So yeah. we've been, Ali, why don't we just, before we lose the Iran thing, just go a bit further. We've been doing a lot of meetings on the sidelines with people from the region, as well as Europeans who are involved in the dossier. It's not been the most uplifting set of meetings mm. that I've ever been in. But do you want to give a bit of a flavour of, of how people are thinking? Because there's obviously this ticking time bomb between now, literally, <laughs> between mm. now and November, and a hope on the European side to, that the JCPOA can be kept on life support until then and that things don't escalate completely out, out of control. But there are quite a lot of difficult steps between now and November. Yeah, I mean, the the JCPOA still remains at the heart of this debate on Europe and Iran. And both sides are incredibly limited and constrained by their domestic politics. So for the European side, it's, it's very clear, despite all of the kind of chest thumping in 2018, that actually the manoeuvring space on uh, providing Iran with any economic relief is incredibly limited to the extent that this special purpose vehicle for trade with Iran, you know, hasn't even kicked off properly yet. And even if it does, it's going to be incredibly minimal and maneuvering within US green light parameters. Um, so the Europeans have basically been trying to kick the can down the road and buy time. And perhaps this is the best that we can hope for, that they can keep the architecture of this agreement in place until November when everyone will be faced with, you know, very critical choices. Because I think the Iranians also know if there is a Trump term too, the current dynamics cannot be sustained and they're going to have to look at a um, different dynamic and relationship with the Trump administration. On the Iranian side, um, domestic politics are also incredibly heated at the moment with, um, you know, the Rouhani administration increasingly marginalized because of the perceived failure of the nuclear deal. And we may see much more provocation both on the nuclear deal, but also on the regional issues, because the mentality now is that we need to present uh, from the Iranian side, President Trump with the choice of diplomacy versus conflict and and that he hasn't been clearly forced to choose between the two. So we may actually be heading towards a very bumpy few months uh, towards the November um, elections in the US where, where the Iranian side tries to create more costs for the US policy. By withdrawing from the MPT. Things like that. And also, you know, we've seen a lot of things go pop in the region in the last six months. And I can only think that we're weeks away from another thing um, happening. Jewelry stuff. (laughs) And Macron speaking this morning. Should we talk a bit about Franco-German relations, which obviously been going for a very warm period in recent months? (laughs) Oh, man. Yes. What exactly would you like to know, Mark? (laughs) Well, tell us about how uh, how they're going to go from strength to strength. 
Right. So, so far, as we're recording this, I feel that Franco-German relations haven't really been kind of a major part of the conference yet. I think this is going to change now that, that Macron is, um, in fact, he's not giving a speech. He's doing a, a interview type thing with Wolfgang Ischinger. So that's going to be quite interesting, especially because he is supposed to take questions from the audience. And I very much expect a lot of German parliamentarians and others to ask questions. And I would assume that one of the topics of discussion will be be about the European nuclear umbrella. Um, Emmanuel Macron has just given a speech about France's nuclear strategy. This is a speech that every French president gives once during his time in office. It was an interesting speech for Macron in so far as he did not actually propose something very specific, which is what he has done in the past, right? Macron came out and then proposed several things and then basically the Germans either didn't answer or shut him down. And this time he basically just opened a discussion and said, we need to talk about, you know, nuclear power in uh, and in nuclear weapons in Europe. And so I guess that now in a way the, the ball is in the court of the, the Germans and other Europeans to take him up on that. And I assume that there will be discussions about that. Um, other than that, yeah, it is true that the Franco-German relations at the moment are a bit tricky. Uh, I think there is a lot of frustration on the French side because there is so much political turmoil in Germany and um, Germans aren't really responding in, in a very kind of coherent way to, to Macron's proposal. And I think that there is a fear that windows of opportunities are closing and just nothing is happening. And so it's honestly, it's, it's mainly a bit frustrating. It's not that there are any kind of major points of disagreements where they're really fighting with each other. It's just that there are so many things that don't really seem to be moving forward. And that's a bit uh, frustrating. So last year, Mike Pence was the kind of bogeyman at the conference. I'm wondering whether it might be another American this year. This afternoon, Mark Zuckerberg's going to be speaking. <laughs> do, what do you think is going to happen there? Bianca, you've been following a lot of the tech discussions in Germany. I think it's going to be interesting because we saw that in the first comments that Wolfgang Schäuble also made in his pan the panel with Nancy Pelosi to say, we don't want to choose between Chinese authoritarianism and Silicon Valley capitalism. I think this is a, something that really catches on also with the German society. It catches on with the European broader idea of all these US tech companies actually ruling our lives, having privileged access to our data and there's nothing we can do about it. In these whole conversations that we have about European sovereignty, the question of how do we deal with that, how do we deal with the digital part of, of our uh, sovereignty is really catching on. So we'll see what he has to say when he makes some learn commitments. fast and fix things, social media and democracy. I wonder so. whether he can fix things uh, with the Europeans. I'm not so sure. Whether I wonder whether he can learn it all. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see. I mean, it will be interesting to see what kind of message he brings yeah. for the Europeans. Yeah. I think you might also be underestimating Mike Pompeo's ability to be able to serve as the bogeyman. I mean, he's, you know, he is right now, I think, giving a speech, which is probably pretty bogey. And uh, it's, he's going to announce, I understand, a billion dollar investment in the Three Seas Initiative, which is essentially a Polish Central European infrastructure initiative, which, you know, sounds nice, but is actually aimed in part at... Um, dividing and ruling Europeans. Dividing and ruling Europeans. It's the American version of the, the 17 plus one. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, first of all, it will allow American natural gas into this corridor, which is also a goal of the Americans, which is totally fine. But another point of the initiative is to allow, the, to set the predicate for the trade negotiation that the United States hopes to have with the European Union uh, in, the sunk, in the second Trump term, if he's reelected, 
And that will mean having the ability and the leverage to divide Easterners from the Westerners to force the EU into a trade negotiation. Even more so than already. <laughs> Even more so than already. And that the Three Seas is the Three Seas Initiative donation it's the candy is part of the candy. I'm sure there'll have to be many more pieces to that. But I think that that's what's going on. Um, and so and I don't think that that's going to be lost on Germans and French people mm. in the crowd. So I think that might be the that might be some of the news that we hear when we leave this room. So we hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. We haven't yet lived through the whole of the conference, but all my colleagues are going to be writing up in different forms from tweets to longer commentaries. And we'll post them all on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please let other people know. Give us a rating or review on whatever platform you're using to listen to us on. But for now, from Ellie Garamaya, Ulrike Franke, Janka Ertler, Jeremy Shapiro, and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. Editor Marta Saletti. The producer of ECFR's podcast is Marlene Arriba.